Amen. Great to have the kids in the house here today. Uh, it's been fun to see them milling about. We knew when we didn't have all of our children's classes that things would be a little bit noisier around here. We'd have a little extra squawking and talking, and I love it. Uh, even the crying. The parents don't like that, but I, even that, uh, I love the presence of, of the kids with us. Uh, John chapter 20 is going to be our text. It's the text that was read for us here already this morning by our readers. And uh, we will be working through uh, that text from a number of different perspectives today. Uh, A hinge point. I've called this teaching a hinge point, the hinge point of history. A hinge point is a point where something pivots. We think of it most often probably with a door, right? With a hinge that actually is the point where that door turns. It's a significant shift, A hinge point is a movement into a new era, a new reality, an era of significant change. We could all identify certain hinge points uh, in our own personal lives, a significant conversation, uh, a phone call in the middle of the night, right? a financial catastrophe, a, a sobering health diagnosis, a serious accident. And of course, we can identify moments that have radically altered not just our individual lives, but have altered the course of history. It was 1440 when Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press. And in 1999, when Time Magazine put out their Millennium Edition, they identified Gutenberg as the man of the millennium. Just thinking about the significance of the written word, uh, being able to be distributed, certainly a hinge point in history. Uh, There's also March 3rd of 1938 when the king of Saudi Arabia discovered what would be the largest supply of crude oil in the world. A hinge point in terms of global wealth and resources October 1st, 1949, when Mao Zedong stood at the entrance of the Forbidden City in Beijing and announced the establishment of the People's Republic of China. The fall of the Berlin Wall, November 9, 1989. February 11, 1990, when Nelson Mandela was released from a South African prison after 27 years, signaling a new era of freedom for all South Africans. Of course, there was 9-11 of 2001. February 4, 2004, when Facebook was founded. For good or for bad, altering the ways in which we relate to one another. But no day is more earth-shattering than Resurrection Day. Gospel accounts all indicate that the resurrection took place on the first day of the week. An interesting choice of terms. The emphasis is not on the third day after the crucifixion, but on the first day of the week. The beginning of something new. No wonder that the early church began to meet regularly on the first day of the week or on the Lord's day. Each week remembering the hope of the resurrection. The scriptures are replete with references to the newness that was inaugurated in the ministry of Jesus Christ. 
new wineskins, new teaching, new covenant, new commandment, a new creation, a new man, a new name, a new song, a new heaven, and a new earth. And the resurrection is the crescendo of all that Jesus came to do and accomplish. Every time we look at the calendar or write the date, we are marking the time since Jesus' earthly ministry, right? In our sanitized, airbrushed culture, we now call it 2020 in the common era, but it would be 2022 in A.D., the year of our Lord, Anno Domini, right? We're counting the years. Uh, Even our calendars are structured around that hinge point in history. I love how the significance of the day is captured even through art. Not just the text, which we're going to consider today, uh, but here we have uh, The Holy Women at the Tomb by William Adolf Bogaru. And... um, yeah, we actually have the print of this down in the commons. Uh, maybe you've never noticed it before, but this work depicts the three Marys. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Mary of Cleophas at the tomb of the resurrection. All carrying their spices. Uh, you see the one woman here with the, the, the basin, and she has all of the supplies that they had brought to anoint the body of Jesus. They had not come with resurrection on their minds. Uh, They had come in their mourning clothes, right, wondering to themselves how they were going to move the stone in order to anoint Jesus' body. And when they arrived to find an empty tomb and an angelic messenger, uh, their world was rocked, right? Everything changed. My kids love this illustration by Jago in the Jesus Storybook Bible depicts Mary Magdalene running from the tomb after meeting the resurrected Jesus. And we would often have the discussion of how a person gets into such a contorted position. You know, how do you do that? Uh, How do you leap like that? Uh, Only the resurrection makes someone leap like that, right? Think of what was going through Mary Magdalene's mind as she made her way from the tomb to make that announcement to the disciples. Death had been defeated. (laughs) Truly, Jesus' resurrection was the hinge point of history. Now, the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, present a variety of perspectives regarding Jesus' resurrection appearances. Matter of fact, it can be somewhat challenging to try to figure out the exact timeline and string it all together based on the four accounts. But woven together, they provide a rich and multi-layered eyewitness account. John chooses to focus on four particular individuals here in John 20, interweaving their accounts. Each of them came to believe in the resurrection, but each experience was a bit different. I want us to consider each of their stories and the development of their faith. So we're going to run the story back four times here. Uh, real briefly, to just kind of consider uh, their journeys of faith. First, of course, was Mary Magdalene. That's where the text starts in John 20. Uh, Based on the other gospel accounts, we know that there were at least five women who set out from Bethany before dawn that morning in order to walk the two miles to Jesus' tomb. 
Again, they had come with spices to anoint Jesus' dead body, to control, uh, to counter the smell of decomposition. And as they walked, they talked uh, amongst themselves about how they were going to roll away that giant stone. Uh, Clearly, they did not expect Jesus to rise from the dead. Uh, John focuses on Mary Magdalene in his account. Jesus had previously cast out seven demons from Mary, and she never forgot. As a matter of fact, even when the other disciples fled, Mary was uh, Mary Magdalene was there. She was there at the crucifixion. She was there when Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus wrapped Jesus' body and put it in the tomb and rolled the stone over the opening. And now she is present again at the tomb in the pre-dawn hours that Sunday morning. It appears, based on John's account, that Mary did not hear the announcement from the angel. Matter of fact, if you read the account carefully, it says that when she saw that the stone had been rolled away, she ran off to go tell Peter and John, who were staying nearby. The other women then went into the tomb and heard the announcement, but not Mary Magdalene. So her announcement, her initial announcement to Peter and John was not uh, one of euphoria of a resurrected Christ, but rather that Jesus' body had been stolen. And we don't know where they have put it. Peter and John came to see it with their own eyes. And after this, Mary then returned back to the tomb alone. Peter and John had come and then they left. And Mary comes to the tomb again alone. And here she hears from the angelic messengers, and here she encounters Jesus, even though she didn't recognize him, right? Until he called her name, Mary. And then she spun around and recognized Jesus and embraced the risen Christ. Mary was the first to see Jesus alive, an appropriate honor, and she believed And then, of course, there's Peter and John. When Mary first saw the stone rolled away, she went to Peter and John to report that Jesus' body had been stolen. John, in his gospel account there, uh, in chapter 20, uh, identifies himself with a veiled reference. Uh, Spoke of himself as the one, the disciple that Jesus loved. John never spoke of himself in first person, but always with that designation. So Peter and John make their way to the tomb to investigate. John arrived first. I don't think John is just bragging here as he writes his gospel account that I beat Peter in that race. John was considerably younger. There's just an aspect of realism in the text here. We'll be given the details, the richness of what took place. John was the first one to get to the mouth of the tomb. And he peered in And what John saw was not at all consistent with a grave robbery. Who would take the time to remove the grave clothes from a dead body before stealing it? Impetuous Peter finally catches up. He doesn't stop at the opening of the tomb. He rushes right in, right? In typical Peter fashion. And Peter sees something else that is significant. There's an interesting word here, It says that he saw the strips of cloth wrapped or rolled, not folded. 
as some translations say. This is actually the same word that was used to describe how Joseph had wrapped the body after the crucifixion. It wasn't just that someone had taken the time to remove the grave clothes. The grave clothes had not been unwrapped. Almost as if the body had come through the wrappings. Again, a very different resurrection than that of Lazarus. Who remember, they had to help him get the grave clothes off. <laughs> right? Uh, that wasn't the case with Jesus. The, the cloths were lying there just as they had been on his body. So something very different is happening here, and Peter and John recognize it as such, and John, we are told, believed. Even before John saw the resurrected Jesus, he believed. And in a certain sense, he didn't believe because the tomb was empty. He believed because the tomb wasn't empty. The grave clothes, at least in part, were part of what convinced him that the resurrection was true, that this was not simply a grave robbery. And then, of course, there's Peter. Peter and John saw the same things, right? But they processed them differently. The sense is that Peter went away without believing. Meanwhile, Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene. Jesus appeared to the other women. And they went to tell the disciples, not that the body of Jesus had been stolen, but that Jesus had been raised from the dead, that he was alive. And, of course, the disciples, including Peter, did not believe. They thought it to be an idle tale, one translation says. This is crazy talk. Peter went back to the tomb again at that point. And he left without knowing what to think, according to Luke 24. He marveled. He wondered. He couldn't figure out what was happening. He couldn't make sense of it. He couldn't reconcile what he saw with his eyes and what he knew about the nature of the ordered world. (laughs) And then, although we are not given details, we're told that Jesus appeared to Peter. We're told this in Luke 24. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 15. And Peter then returned to share his own eyewitness testimony with the other disciples. So Peter believed after seeing the empty tomb, after hearing eyewitness accounts, but ultimately only after seeing the risen Christ. And then, of course, John's account here ends with Thomas, whose journey of faith is different yet. Thomas wasn't there when Jesus first appeared to the disciples altogether, And even though there were now multiple eyewitness accounts, Thomas refused to believe. He said, unless I see him myself, unless I touch him and touch the wounds in his hands and in his side, I will not believe. And of course, Jesus did appear then to all of them, including Thomas, a week later. And he invited Thomas to touch his wounds. And Thomas now believed. After not just hearing... Eyewitness account after just seeing the the, the empty tomb, after seeing Jesus, but now even touching Jesus. His faith is now confirmed. And God went to great lengths to provide every assurance for his disciples so that they could be confident and sure of the reality of the resurrection. 
Uh, At that point here in John 20, after the encounter with Thomas, Jesus issues a statement that is for all of our benefit. He, He pronounces, he says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I'm so glad that you've come to believe, Thomas, but many will come after you who will not see me, who will not touch my wounds. Blessed are those, blessed are those of us who will believe without seeing trusting the eyewitness accounts passed down to us in the pages of Scripture. John records all of these different eyewitness accounts. Mary Magdalene, John, Peter, and Thomas for one specific purpose so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. There's the purpose statement right at the end of John 20. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John declares Jesus to be the source of eternal life. He's the only one who has defeated death. Salvation is found in no other name. And we receive that life through faith, through belief. And so John calls his readers to believe. And I echo that call. (laughs) To look to the risen Christ as the only one who can provide eternal life. So we've considered the faith journey of these four individuals. Written to bolster our faith so that we might believe. I want us now to look at the text again briefly and consider the implications of the resurrection. I've told you at the outset that the resurrection is the hinge point of human history. And as we look at Jesus' words here in the text, he communicates very clearly what has changed. Why this is such a watershed event. So three things. First, what we're calling the new reality. The new reality. Look in chapter 20, verses 17 and 18. Here we have Jesus' encounter with Mary Magdalene. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. So Jesus tells Mary, let go of me, don't touch me, stop clinging to me. Jesus isn't concerned here about his personal space. He will allow Thomas, again, to touch the wounds in his hands, the wounds in his side. I believe Jesus is responding to the chokehold that Mary has on him. Don't cling to me. Why? Because I have not yet ascended. Jesus begins to speak of a new reality that is underway. His ascension, where he will return back to the right hand of the Father. Mary's overjoyed, right? Jesus is back. She calls him by the familiar title, Rabboni, teacher. But he had to remind her that while he had been resurrected, he was not staying. 
Jesus was no longer going to walk among them as he did before. Matter of fact, Mary is told to go and tell the disciples, I am ascending. Not just that he would ascend 40 days after his resurrection, but that he was even now in the process of ascending back to the Father. The game has changed. While he made several appearances among them over the period of 40 days, Jesus did not dwell with them as he did previously. Something had changed. There was a new reality that had taken place. Some of you might remember July 29, 1981, when Lady Diana Spencer married Prince Charles, the heir to the British throne. On that day, Lady Diana assumed a new title, Princess Diana, right? A new home, a new set of privileges, new authorities, new influence. And Jesus, following the resurrection, assumed and stepped into a new reality. What does this mean for us? What are the implications? We've been given a strong human advocate at the right hand of the Father. Jesus' ascension uh, is... A wonderful aspect of our hope. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. That's not just good news for Jesus that he has returned to that place of honor and privilege, but it's good news for us because Jesus has sat down at the right hand of the Father to intercede for us. And he does so in his humanity. Jesus rose from the grave physically, right? His body was raised back to life, and Jesus, the human Jesus, who's both human and divine, is seated at the right hand of the Father. We as humanity have a representative in heaven. This is a wonderful declaration. It should impact certainly how we pray. We have a compassionate high priest, one who's been tested and tempted in every way like we have. So we have an advocate Uh, Certainly, uh, death has been defeated. This is the other obvious implication, right? It was a literal, physical resurrection. His body was raised back to life, the same body that had been placed in the tomb. He was able to be recognized, scars and all. He was able to eat. On multiple occasions, he ate with his disciples to demonstrate to them the reality of the resurrection. He could be touched. But Jesus' body had not only been raised, it had been transformed. It was a physical body, but it was a glorified body. Jesus was able to pass through grave clothes. Uh, He was able to enter into a locked room. The disciples were cloistered away with the doors locked, and Jesus appeared among them. Jesus didn't just escape death. He defeated death. This was not just a Lazarus type of resurrection, raised only to die again a few short years later. It is a resurrection to a radically new type of life. This is part of this new reality. I would also suggest to you that we have been given a vivid glimpse of our future. The scriptures speak in multiple texts about 
the coming resurrection of the dead. And Paul is very clear, particularly in 1 Corinthians 15, that this resurrection, this coming resurrection of the dead, is uh, after the pattern of Christ's resurrection. He writes, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Uh, This is an agricultural image. In the Jewish context, you would take the first few sheaves of wheat or barley from the harvest, and you would take them to the temple courts, and you would wave them before the Lord as a praise offering, thanking God for the, the harvest that was about to be gathered in. So Jesus is just the first, as amazing as the resurrection is, the resurrection of Jesus, it's just the first in gathering. It's just the first few sheaves of wheat. There's a great coming resurrection of the dead of which Jesus is the first fruits. So we get a glimpse here of what this is going to look like, a sneak peek. This is the trailer for a yet-to-be-released movie, right? So a new reality has dawned here in the resurrection. There's also a new relationship that emerges. Look again at the text in John chapter 20, verse 17. Jesus said to her, to Mary Magdalene, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brother's. And say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Go to my brothers. Up to this point, this terminology of brothers has been reserved exclusively for Jesus' biological half-siblings. So Joseph and Mary went on to have uh, children And these were half-siblings to Jesus. And and when you look at the gospel accounts, this terminology is used exclusively to describe that relationship. But now, Jesus uses this terminology in a totally new way to refer to his disciples as his brothers. And Jesus affirms this new relationship overtly when he says, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. To my God and your God. Jesus was God's only son, right? Sharing God's DNA. But now others have been adopted into God's family through faith. And this has all been accomplished through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A new fraternity had been formed Uh, This is not a new picture. Uh, It was taken about four years ago, but this was a group of our families here at FHBC who have adopted. Love this picture. And uh, the number has grown uh, through the years. Uh, We have been in the courtroom to hear the judge pound his gavel and make a declaration that this child has now become part of uh, a forever family and uh, gives me chills every time. These families have their own tensions and struggles, just like every family, right? But adoption establishes a permanent and enduring relationship. And this is our story, every one of us. If we've come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, we have been adopted into his family. And that is an an enduring relationship. It's not just a friendship relationship that comes and goes. Like it or not, your siblings are your siblings for life. Right? No amens at this point. It's just, 
It's just a reality, right? You might not get along all the time, but there's a steadiness to that that uh, never goes away. And this is what has been accomplished in the work of Christ, culminating in his resurrection. So what does this new relationship mean for us? Of course, we've entered into a new relationship with God. We are now able to know him, not just as God, but as Father, uh, Heavenly Father. This relationship has been secured through the work of Christ. Um, Remember there on the cross where Jesus declared it is finished, and we're told that in the temple, the great curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. It was God who tore the curtain, right? Removing the barrier that, established, that, that existed between us and God because of our sin. That was rectified and reconciled at the cross. Peter clearly connects this with uh, the resurrection of Christ. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So here he uses not just adoption terminology, right, but new birth terminology and connects that to the resurrection of Christ. We have been made alive We have been born spiritually through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So certainly it signals a a new relationship with God. Uh, We've entered into a new relationship with Jesus as well. Jesus is not only our Savior, but our brother. Uh, A reference that uh, is also made in Hebrews chapter 2 and Romans chapter 8. We don't have some secondary status to Jesus in the family. It's not just that Jesus receives 90% of the inheritance and then the rest of us divide the other 10%. Scripture speaks of us as being joint heirs with Jesus, which means we inherit it all with Jesus. (laughs) A tremendous statement of our full inclusion as children in the family of God. And of course, we also enter into a new relationship with one another. We've been seeing this in Paul's little letter to the Philippians, uh, where we've been studying on Sunday mornings. Uh, Nine times uh, Paul uses that designation as he addresses the church. Brothers, brothers and sisters, This aspect of family is the controlling metaphor for understanding our relationship to one another. Uh, Matthew 18 uh, is what we think of as a church discipline text. But if you read Matthew 18, just look at all the family references. References to little children and to brothers and sisters. and it's, It's all about family caring for one another. Uh, And when you see someone in your family that's on a path of destruction, you don't just stand there idly by. You you get involved. You try to help them out of that addiction or whatever it might be, right? This is the the way that we ought to be relating to uh, one another. So uh, this, again, all flows out of the finished work of Christ. 
a new reality in terms of the nature of the resurrection, but a new relationship uh, with God, with Jesus, and with one another. Finally, a new responsibility. Let's look back again at the text in John chapter 20, beginning in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. A new responsibility. When Jesus had all the disciples together, he commissioned them. He assigned them a new task. Many of you know the story of uh, the de Krieger family, our sent missionaries to Togo, West Africa. Uh, medical missions there in a very needy part of the world. And Todd, the husband and father, passed away. It's actually been six years ago. Todd passed away in the midst of his medical work there, contracted loss of fever, and before they could diagnose it properly, he was gone. And I remember sitting down to talk with his four young boys who had been left behind. And, uh, of course, just grieving with them and praying with them and encouraging them, but also having to remind them that they were going to be embracing some different responsibilities. I wish you didn't have to. But charging them that they had a responsibility now to watch over their mother. They were going to have some responsibilities at the hospital. Uh, and um, I, 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 you know, I, I was able to just kind of convey that uh, to them. And my friends, in light of Jesus' resurrection and his ascension... Uh, we have now been given a new set of responsibilities. We've been commissioned uh, as God's representatives in the world. And Jesus puts it in such graphic terms. As the Father has sent me into the world, right? So now I send you. That's a pretty lofty pattern, isn't it? But we are to represent God during this time, this in-between time, in the same way that Jesus represented God in the world. A new era of missions has been inaugurated. It's time for us to break the huddle, right? Time for the disciples to break the huddle. They wanted to remain cloistered, and, and Jesus said, you, when the Holy Spirit comes, you're, you're to, to be my witnesses. We've been promised the indwelling, empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. As part of this responsibility, we've been given a new enablement. Right? Jesus, think about the imagery here. So graphic, Jesus breathed on them. 
That word for breath is the same word for spirit in the, in the, in the Greek language. He spirited on them. Not spit on them. He spirited on them, right? And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Earlier in John's Gospel, he talked about the fact that if he didn't go away, he wouldn't be able to send the other comforter. He actually said it would be better for you that I go away. Seems crazy to our ears, probably seemed crazy to the ears of the disciples. But it was better to have the Spirit of God in them than the Son of God alongside of them. It's a wonderful thing that's been inaugurated here, the presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling and empowering the lives of his people. We have been authorized to convey the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. This is a downright uncomfortable passage for us. He says here that if you forgive the sins of any, they will be forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness, it will be withheld. Speaking here to the church collectively, that bear a very sobering and yet awesome responsibility. To extend the offer of forgiveness of sins to lost humanity. (laughs) To hold the keys of the kingdom. Keys that would allow people to gain entry into the presence of God. And so this, the nature, the very nature of the task, this gospel task to bring good news and the offer of forgiveness of sins to all who will come By faith in Christ. The resurrection is the hinge point of history. It is a new reality. Death has been defeated. Life has now arrived. It signals a new relationship. We are no longer God's enemies, but adopted into his family. And it signals a new responsibility. We have been commissioned to be God's representatives in the world. 